Hi everyone, welcome to episode three of Better Together. I'm Natasha Sloman, Director of Quality at Priory Healthcare, and today I'm joined by Dr. Amy Pollard and Devon Solomon, who have had first-hand experience of using mental health services. During this episode, we'll be talking about what outstanding mental health care looks like from the perspective of people who are on the receiving end of these types of services. Welcome, Amy and Devon. It's really good to see you both. How are you both? Hello. Hiya. I'm well, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, very good. So it's been a while since we've all been together or all seen each other. How have things been? How are you coping with the COVID crisis? Devon, how's it been for you? I'm a homebody at heart, so I've slotted into it probably too easily. (laughs) Worryingly easily. (laughs) So coping okay at home? Yeah. Yeah. And Amy, how's it been for you? Yeah, it's been, well, I don't know, to start with, I did feel like quite panicked by it in some respects. Like me and my husband like went on a really strict news diet. So we didn't look at any websites or any news or anything during the day. And then we were only watching like BBC News at six, like together so that, you know, so we could just take it in bite size, you know, bits. And I started really freaking out about Samaritans. So I, I, uh, when I'm So I've had three major episodes, one after when I was living in Indonesia and there was a big earthquake, one after the 2008 financial crisis and then one after Brexit. So I'm quite sensitive to sort of what's going on in the world, basically. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah, I know for some weird reason. Anyway, I started really freaking out like, okay, this is going to be a big test for me. It's funny that you mentioned your relationship with the news because... For me, early on, I've had, uh, uh, for the most part, I've had a very positive relationship with the news. Early on, it, it, understanding the crisis kind of really helped me. You know what I mean? Mm. Finding out about all of the statistics and being able to put things into context, it really Mm -hmm. helped me because I think I would have felt, you know, a a little more helpless if I'd just been shut away at home and didn't have a clue of what Mm. was going on. And especially because I have, you know, the furthest I've gone mostly is just to my corner shop. So I haven't really been out in the world. So the television has been my window and my eye to the world. There was a time after about two weeks where I did have to take a break from the news. But for me, generally, it was quite positive just to be able to get to understand and get to grips with what's going on. It's incredibly anxiety provoking, isn't it? I, I, yeah. I'm the, I, I actually had to stop watching the news for <laughs> at least 10 days because yeah. Yeah. the anxiety levels after getting all that information were just rising, rising, rising. And I yeah. felt I had to cut myself off. So, I mean, did, did you feel the same or, or did that provoke more anxiety? It, I, I mean, I was giving up social media for Lent anyway. Right. And so I think that was quite fortuitous. And uh, I went back on it after Easter. I was like, you know what? I think I'll do a bit more giving up yeah. social media. So I don't know. I think one of the things I've noticed is that, you know, over the over the each time I've had like a big major crisis, I've become better at sort of navigating the territory within myself and becoming more conscious and more aware of, you know, when I'm, you know, kind of becoming a bit whizzy or get a bit low or, or whatever. It's been really interesting to see like more people in the general population, like finding things really difficult. Yeah. And actually 
rec- like describing some of the challenges that I've faced like many times in my life and it's kind of weird to be the one going like mm, yeah mm, yeah so guys tell tell our viewers or our listeners a bit about yourselves so Devon tell us a bit about you so currently working as an expert by experience come quality checker for a major hospital group also studying a levels as well with the aim to do mental health nursing at university. So the modules are biology, psychology, nursing studies. Yeah. Fantastic. But in terms of like my history, I, I've i spent time in a medium secure um, psychiatric intensive care unit, PQ. And then I, w- I was stepped down to a low secure where I spent a year and um, it was actually that same hospital that sort of took me on now to, right. you know, do some work for them and try to improve the service. All right. And Amy, tell us a bit about you. So I'm a social scientist by by training. You know, I did social anthropology for my, my PhD. Then I worked for a long time in uh, charities and government and sort of the not-for-profit world. And I, I did quite well career-wise, but then I kept getting getting really really clattered with sort of mental health crises from time to time so you know I'd be the first time it happened I was like let's get back on the horse and you know take pride in you know persevering and then the second time it happened I was like you know got to take stock of your work-life balance and and you know take that really seriously take well-being more seriously but don't let it derail like what you've built for yourself you know don't need to kind of throw away all of that you know everything you've grown with that journey and then the third time it happened I was like actually maybe maybe it does like require a a change of direction so that happened in in sort of 2016 actually yeah triggered triggered by Brexit which feels like a very parochial thing to get upset about these days but anyway I had a a sort of big meltdown and crisis after triggered triggered by that my my baby was eight months old at the time and I was like breast breastfeeding through the night and like my mental health I think was a bit wobbly anyway at that point and I spent time in an acute ward for some time and was separated from my baby there and then was very very lucky to be on a mother and baby ward with her for four months after that and then got discharged yeah and then since then I sort of picked myself up and have started a a new not-for-profit called Mental Health Collective which is basically coming at mental health as a social scientist like for me like trying to think about the social and collective dimensions of mental health yeah you can't have treatment care interventions without a good understanding of the social model and the social constructs of mental health or else treatment doesn't in and of itself medication is just not the only answer is it no yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not out for psychiatry bashing no. or you know, not down on the, all the other disciplines and professions at all. Like it's, but you need you need to have all the different strings to your bow when you're dealing with something as complex as mental yeah, health. Yeah, definitely, absolutely. So, in your view, what do you think mental health, outstanding mental health care, looks like? So, for me, I was reflecting on like the word outstanding. Yeah. And I I suppose it means something that stands out, doesn't it? So something that you remember that really stays with Mm -hmm. you as an individual. And I was reflecting on like some of the things that stayed with me when I was unwell. And um, I think it was, 
it was I mean I, I can tell a couple of stories maybe please so <laughs> I remember when I was on the when I was on the acute ward it was just a horrific environment it was so like there was a sort of threat of violence in the air and and I did witness like some some really like harrowing scenes that you know with with one service user sort of chasing another with a pot of boiling water and being like I wouldn't really do it I wouldn't really do it and like the screams of people as they were being like forcibly injected and you know like racial abuse against myself for the first time in my life and you know just just really really harsh really nasty 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 times and I was um like campaigning <laughs> campaigning quite vigorously to you know be reunited with my baby and to to, to try and get myself into a into a better environment and uh I remember at the at the end when I when I like finally got finally got discharged like, I was still a little bit elevated and maybe like you'll forgive me when I tell this story I'm a bit embarrassed because it wasn't 100% appropriate or what I would do now I, I went up to the guy who who managed the ward who is this um big black guy with dreadlocks I said to him like I've got something inappropriate to say to you and he said okay <laughs> and I said peace be with you brother and I wait and I and I um, shook his hand and like he bro- broke into fits of laughter and like really enjoyed it and slapped me on the back and that felt very healing like the fact that he responded to me as like with with the authenticity of that gesture but also laughed with me about it like the fact that I knew it was inappropriate he knew it was a bit you know what I mean and and I think often we say I'm feeling a bit weird or we describe someone else's behavior as weird when you're in mental health crisis but often that behavior is also funny and if you say oh I feel a bit funny or if they've done something a bit funny the tone of that is so different and I found like there have been many times actually in in my in those months where I was being cared for the things that I remember are like the bits where we laughed together so I remember you know, I told a story about to with one of the midwives, the nursery nursery carers when, when I was in the mother and baby unit. I told her the story of how when um so the police came to drag me out of my house because I wasn't I wasn't gonna go quietly. I kept trying to offer them a cup of tea because that's what I do when people come to my house. And they wouldn't drink my tea, they wouldn't accept my tea. And we had this big like standoff in the kitchen where I was like why are you not accepting my tea? Like, why are you being so rude in my house as to not drink my tea? And uh, in the end, I like smashed the teapot on the floor. And that's when they, they got their handcuffs out and they dragged me, dragged me out of the house. And I told this story, you know, to one of the, to, to one of the staff members at the mother and baby unit. And she just couldn't stop herself from laughing about it. And then I laughed too. And it is quite funny. It is actually quite funny, you know, to, to sort of have this big ruckus about tea drinking, you know, at the end of your tether. And I think... There's a lot of healing that can come when people are are unafraid to kind of acknowledge your humanity. It's the dignity that can come when when people try and see things from different angles, basically. It's that diffusion of tension. So it's, I think for me, it, those extending moments where when someone connected to you as a real human being. Yeah, yeah. And things as simple as accepting a cup of tea from somebody is a, a really important connection, isn't it? <laughs> I, I mean, it wouldn't have mattered to no. me if he'd have taken the tea and not drunk exactly. it, if he'd asked for a glass of water, if he'd made any sort of gesture to acknowledge that you're in my home, respect those norms. Whereas he was like, I'm not in your house as a guest, I'm in this, here as a police officer. He was wanting to assert his different role. Yeah. I get that. Yeah. But like, it's a small thing. It doesn't harm anyone. Mm. C- could not agree more. Devon, power of human connection. From your perspective, 
what what do you think makes an outstanding service what what experiences do you have that for me what stood out about my experience was that i really put my myself in the hands of the staff and the team i was completely green didn't have an idea any other idea about my rights my leave entitlement anything and i was curious but i was timid about i was backwards about coming forwards you know what i mean but mm-hmm. the the team saw that i i'd made such you know really good progress and they started giving me tips on what i should ask for in my ward round so saying that i should maybe ask for overnight leave around christmas so i can spend time with my family and my mom also maybe i could ask for 2 hours you know eventually go for the maximum of 2 hours leave every day so i could go to the library which is what i was doing which was great because the computer at the at the hospital was you know was in high demand you could never really get on it <laughs> um so it was great that i could go to the local library for 2 hours and and use the computer there also that i could get extra leave to go to attend a men's group you know right. a men's meeting nearby the fact that i was advised that i could actually lock my bicycle outside the hospital so that i could go cycling during the day as well so i was i was living it up <laughs> you know yeah sounds great well, actually <laughs> really great. is that <laughs> it sounds like they were sort of seeing they like they helped you explain the context that you were in like what you were entitled mm-hmm. to but they also understood your context in terms of what was important to yeah, you exactly and, and like facilitated that exactly it was it was personal because they saw my interests and then they just helped mm. to they just sort of facilitated that you know yeah. yeah they could see that i w- i was eager to get out of hospital but i wasn't being particularly self-destructive i think the most self-destructive thing that i was doing was possibly isolating myself which is probably another reason why they encouraged me in these other ways you know these mm. other avenues mm. so for me that was outstanding the fact that um i i could trust the staff in that way that they worked towards what i valued as my my for my betterment does that make sense yeah yeah, yeah. and as an individual yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely and it's that trust isn't it if like if you trust that they're trying to send you that they're trying to help you go in the same direction yeah. then that's a very different kettle of fish than when it becomes it feels very antagonistic yeah. and feels like you're battling them and you don't you know like the, are they are they imposing some restriction on you out of some persecution or yes. or like you know there's all of that isn't there i mean you 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 hit the the nail on the head with that dreaded word restrictions <laughs> yeah you know we all we all hate those don't we and yeah for and sure especially seeing as like we're all grown ups you know you know people listening to this they 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 they're independent minded and they have their own goals and their own aims and it's and it's disheartening when people actively seek to get in the way of of those you know yeah definitely and i think sometimes people don't think imaginatively about what kind of restriction is helpful mm-hmm. and what isn't do you know what i mean so like I mean... like phones for example like you know i had my phone confiscated at one point which i could see there was definitely 
some ways in which that was helpful because I was a little bit unruly on Twitter <laughs> and on my so you know I was I was probably like not doing myself not doing myself the best um like yeah mm. it wasn't it wasn't great my social media trail at that point so so fair enough and like obviously I wouldn't have wanted to be like on Amazon buying loads of stuff or you know I've got a friend who has the same diagnosis as me who who bought ten Mercedes wow. cars when she was when she was really unwell yeah. and you know real trouble put herself in real yeah. trouble so i get why it's important to to stop people from harming mm. themselves i get that that's a real thing yeah. but 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 by the blunt instrument of taking my phone away it also prevents me from you know having that whole network of support like my my friends my mm. family you, you know like you take so much away and there would have been an imaginative workaround of like give you a dumb phone or give you give you a stripped back mobile phone yes. that that takes away the stuff that's dangerous but doesn't take away the stuff you need exactly i mean we're we're recording this podcast during the lockdown and you know the restrictions are supposed to be reviewed after a f you know every few weeks with the aim that they're mm. not supposed to go on longer than six months. So it's the same with, mm. I mean, if the government can see that, you know, restrictions are not healthy or they can only do but so much, then, you know, carers and, and the service providers should be able to see that as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's that sort of sometimes people get very concerned with uh, physical risk mm. and they don't make an appropriate or proportionate assessment of psychological yeah. risk and I think it's much more easy to spot the things in the environment you know like uh, you know is there a, a ligature point is there I don't know yeah you know the other stuff the, the, the reason that so many wards like feel like prison environments mm. is obviously because people are trying to make things more physically safe mm -hmm. But often that comes with a psychological cost. Yeah. And I don't know that those are always pro like properly thought about yeah. whether, or just that they, they roll through like, oh, these sorts of decisions like need, quote unquote need to be made because of this level of environment without actually assessing the, the real cost benefit analysis. And that know. sort of really confused me when I, when I was first uh, introduced into the environment because I had my first episode quite late when I was around 31. And mm -hmm. I was just confused by the fact that everything was sort of taken away or wrapped in, you know, bubble wrap and, you know, um, cotton wool and I was protected. So but, infantilizing. Yeah, infantilized. Yeah. But at the same time, I was expected to be independent within the confines mm. of what they set. You know, that, mm. that really confused me. I didn't understand that at first. Mm. Do you think it's a really interesting subject area, mm -hmm. actually? And, and there was a question about, do you think that the environment in which you both received treatment made a difference? Because, I mean, what you're describing is that the, the environment often doesn't promote a sense of psychological safety. Mm -hmm. There's restrictions, mm. there's disturbance. Mm. There's the unknown, mm -hmm. there's the infantilization potentially of you as a person when you go into a place which takes away your freedoms and your liberty. Mm. So what could be different about the environments of psychiatric inpatient units that would make them better and make people feel more psychologically safe? For me... I mean, and speaking a little bit on behalf of some of the people that I've come across since going back to try to help improve the service, communication, clear, how can I say it? Not patronising people. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm. Just being honest and being clear. 
this is mm. what what we have to do. These are the reasons why. You know, we understand that it's it's not ideal, but you know what I mean. Just honest, clear communication. Yeah, I think for me, there's there's a, there's some low hanging fruit in terms of the physical environment. Yeah. Uh, you know, so many of the facilities are incredibly dilapidated and not really fit for purpose. Like the facility I was in, you know, the mother and baby unit had rats. Wow. Like you would see the rats like more than once, and like there's babies learning to crawl in that environment. Yeah. And like psychologically to know that you're obviously people's confidence in their mothering is is not the best in that space. But do you really have to witness like the, the, the rats crawling on the floor where your babies are? Like it's it's just it's absolutely not. <laughs> it's not OK. That's not OK. It is. Un- it's really it's really not OK, you know, and I dare say that's not what any of the staff would have wanted but it's it's really that is really problematic that goes back a little bit to what i was saying about how you're expected to be a mother and uh, and be responsible for this other person but at the same time Mm. they've you're in an environment where you can't fully take the lead and the and the responsibility like you can't fully protect your baby from the rats exactly ordinarily you would (laughs) yeah yeah no that's that's right that's right yeah you can't I don't know I mean there was some simple like good things I think that they put in that environment so they had a a great big wall right by the reception where there were loads and loads of pictures of the babies and the mums from like a year on so like the thank you cards and that and basically they were in the decoration by showing all those pictures they were in quite a sort of subtle way creating a kind of shrine to things will change you can recover like a a very hopeful point to sort of show people in the narrative and I think that was really that was really good I remember some things on the wall there was like a recovery tree with sort of ideas of ways of supporting one another and supporting ourselves like to to grow and you know just to cope and that was in the room where people were often rocking their babies to sleep so I think that was quite a sensitive thing way to decorate and there was also I remember a big poster which had like all the different celebrations through the year that you might have from different cultures and different like um, environments and that was quite helpful because when you're in there and you're like look you know you're apart from all the birthdays and all of the it feels like in it, not dissimilar to lockdown in a way in that you don't have those normal markers in the year. And I think that feeling like you're out of celebrating festivals and, and like religious moments or whatever it is in the year that matters to you, it can make you feel connected to a community, it can make you feel part of, you know, part connected to your history that you're, you're, you're people who, who've come before you and give you a sense of like being part of that bigger whole. I think in a simple way just helping people remember like it's st george's day on thursday or it's do you know what i mean it's 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 help it helps to remember who you are in the context of you're not just a mental patient basically and be connected to the wider world a a bigger culture it's so important isn't it that those connections remain that you would normally have when you're at home Mm. those connections are maintained within that sort of 
inpatient facility. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. And there's, basically, there's no getting away from the fact that what's required is a major capital investment to change these dilapidated buildings mm. and to rearrange them properly so that there are no rats <laughs> and, you know, you're not in a place that's completely you know, for falling apart and doesn't feel like a prison, et cetera, et cetera. But there is there is some easy wins which cost a very small amount of money and, you know, you could brainstorm those ideas across outstanding trusts very quickly yeah. and and before you knew it, you you know, for the price of a few hundred pounds, you could have some stuff that really helps. Okay, so um, Amy and Devon, I've got another question for you. What support do you think that providers of mental health services should be given to those people who are approaching discharge? What does, what does outstanding look like? So one thing that really helped me when I was approaching discharge was we had a, a meeting with, you know, the, the consultant psychiatrist and like the nurse who was, who was my key person and like various other folks. And, you know, we were sort of doing a wrap up and whatever. And I said that you know I asked the psychiatrist like do you think it's reasonable to describe like what I've gone through as a sort of spiritual experience and he said psychiatry is very good at things that are reliable but it's not very good at things that are valid and so it you people interpret these experiences in lots of different ways and it's for you to determine what it means to you and I actually thought that was very I thought that was a very freeing thing mm. to say because it wasn't like de- denigrating the fact that like they'd made decisions based on you know the evidence of like how you can how you can expect people with a pattern of symptoms that I've had and like what you might you know the the, the dangers that they might be and the risks that might be there to themselves so they weren't he wasn't like jettisoning his like expertise but he was just saying like this is a completely open question and it's a question that you're that you can take control of and so he basically gave the power back to me to make sense of it and to you know he it wasn't that he was going to take away that diagnosis but he was allowing for a parallel of like the dose diagnosis hasn't disappeared but you can have the meaning of it as well and I found that really helpful just to kind of not say that like just because this has happened for, to you yeah. then I get to control the narrative of your life forever more kind of thing it, it sounds really affirming you know, yeah, it, definitely. It was a, a positive affirmation. That, that's great. Devon, any reflections? Yeah. Discharge. What what was what was outstanding or what would be outstanding? I mean, I think education and facilitation of insight, because when you first go into hospital, oh, I don't belong here. What am I doing here? They're holding me against my will. But it's it's good if you can work with the patient, you know what I mean, the service user, and arrive at a point where they can some somehow find peace with not just the diagnosis, but also their experiences. And also what to expect when they're out there with, you know, without somebody watching over their shoulder every second of the day. I mean, when I was first discharged, I had a meeting with my care coordinator and we had a crisis plan set up. As in, so what does crisis look like for me? Who needs to be contacted? What do I want like to to happen to me and decide from now? You know what I mean? What's important to me? If I do need to go into hospital, 
how is that going to take place you know is there a, is there like um an emergency bag full of stuff like medication clothes phone that i can just pick up and take with me also i i, I let it me know that i want my mum to know where i am <laughs> and she can handle the rest and also the insight in terms of how my diagnosis affects me and what i look like when i'm well and what i look like when I might be becoming less well so that I can, I mean, at the time when I had the crisis meeting, I, I, it was a tick box exercise for me. I, took, I completely took it for granted at the time. But, you know, as things have gone on and I've had my ups and my downs and my ups again, I've, I've, my crisis plan, because it's been written down, I could refer back to it and living through it and reflecting has taught me you know, what I look like at different stages of my wellness. So, so are you describing psychoeducation? So, yes. Yeah, yeah. Amy, have you got any reflections on that? So written care plans, crisis plans, have these things helped? Yeah, and I think, yeah, I really resonate with what Devon's saying about, you know, thinking about the future, thinking about the triggers and stuff. Like one thing that I did with my husband was adapt like the bipolar mo mood scale, like Bipolar UK have got a kind of standardised mood scale with where it's like traffic lights, What what's if you're really, really low in the red zone versus if you're super, super high, like coming off the edge in the in the red zones. And, and we like we wrote that for me specifically so like what are my what do I look like when I'm in the getting into the orange zone if I'm dipping down into the amber zone and stuff and I found that really helpful just so that we could identify with a bit more in a way that I found to be more valid and and agree together like what when action was required and like so so now we've we're much we have a sort of collaborative approach to assessing my mood whereas I think previously it had been more I, I think I had certainly felt it to be like my husband and my parents like ganging up on me basically <laughs> you know but when she when you've got a bit more preparation in place you can work like with with more in a more kind of open dialogue style way like with the consent and collaboration of the of the loved one rather than I other mean, people yeah. yeah on the other side I've had to because I've, I've given a lot of power to my mum in terms of my care because she knows me so well. But on the other side of things, I've had to sort of defend myself when, other, when people around me feel like, oh, you know, I'm taking a turn for the worse or things are not going well. I've had to be like, well, no, you know, I'm going through some life situations and <laughs> they're having an effect on me. I'm not mm. relapsing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, totally. Totally. And, and I think mental health always happens in a context, doesn't it? And it's yeah. really, really annoying when people kind of use the fact that something's happened in your past to sort of interpret your behaviour in ways that aren't, I don't know, that, that disentangle, like that remove you from your context and, yeah. and, you know, make kind of very understandable natural reactions to to difficult things yeah. and to like treat it differently, you know? Yeah. And yeah, I certainly find... Like I often when I'm in a very sort of creative period and I'm having like some interesting ideas and stuff like sometimes that can get missing in my view, like misinterpreted. And it's it's I think there's a genuine question as to like whether I'm just having an idea that other people haven't understood mm. versus yeah. like if I'm going loop de loop, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so people sometimes difficult people might just jump straight to a, oh, my gosh. 
Amy's not well, Duvon's not well, when actually you're just having a crap day like everybody else has crap days and yeah, you're or, feeling a bit... Like, yeah. You know, <laughs> with that... me, it's much more like they say, oh, you're getting really hypomanic or you're getting really you know I, I you're 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 out in the stratosphere yeah. and I'm like yeah. you're just not thinking very carefully and yeah. you're not following yeah. me but you need to walk along like if you only held my hand and stretched out to where I am maybe it wouldn't feel like there was such a distance to, between us like maybe you need to walk with me rather than always mm. pulling me down yeah but also it's that bit about always see the person first and not the yes. diagnosis it's yeah. it's that bit isn't it I think sometimes yeah. people can just jump straight to a diagnosis and just see you in that context it's yeah must be infuriating but you were touching on your you were touching on your families and and we have a question around how important did you find the role of your families in your journey and do you think that mental health services placed enough emphasis on your loved ones and did they work with them in a way that you found was I satisfactory? Mean, I felt obviously incredibly fortunate and very, very, very privileged to like have the supportive family that I have, you know, with my husband and my parents and my, my two, two children. You know, it was a time when like I yeah, had so many people kind of rally around me and to sort of help see the bigger picture in those ways. I certainly felt that there were moments when it felt to me like the providers were sort of siding when there was an element of doubt whether I was well enough to to take leave or well enough to do a certain thing and my husband was a bit like mm, I'm not I don't I just don't know I don't know whether she is or not and it it seemed to me like they there's the staff like erred on the side of what they would say see as caution and said no to to the leave but it was framed as Amy's not well enough rather than there isn't capacity within this family to facilitate this which is more what in my view that's more what it was so it was more that my husband didn't feel like he could cope with me in the state that I was and our children and you know and his work and everything else but I think it was the narrative became me as the problem whereas actually it's much more a kind of whole you know it's a dynamic between everyone like is the capacity to with within this whole system to 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 cope and so I think that's a sort of subtle but important difference which providers would do well to you know because it's just it it feels like blame from from my from my perspective like me being the problem when actually absolutely that's not quite fair And understanding that you're in a family dynamic that is unique to you and your family. And not everybody, carers, loved ones, they don't all respond as you, as they need to respond at times or as you want them to respond. And they've got their own stuff going on, you know. Yeah. But you, I don't know, you know, do challenge me if you think I'm wrong, but sometimes I think the person with the mental health problem just becomes the focus and that understanding of what might be going on around them isn't always there. So they just focus yeah. on you and what your problems are and your deficits might be rather than actually what are your strengths, you know, mm. what are the assets that you have and how can we capitalise on that? Mm. Devon, any reflections about perhaps 
loved ones, families, how providers yeah. worked with your mum? Yeah, I mean, it was understood very early on how how strong the, the relationship is between me and my mum. She was my only relative, really, that went with through the, the whole journey with me. You know, we, we pretty much kept it between us. <laughs> it's only since discharge that I've gone back and I've explained things to other relatives, what, what was, what's been going on with me. But the providers recognised that relationship and they sort of capitalised on it and they protected it as well, which is really important. Because at one point, like I wasn't eating, but my mum was coming in, you know, every, you know, maybe twice a week to drop off dry food for me to eat you know, noodles <laughs> and so on, water, things like that. Yeah, and it was allowed. I'm not sure. I think it feels like they they recognised my needs and they made sort of special allowances just to sort of keep me going and keep me alive <laughs> while I was going through what I was going through. And then later on, when I was uh, a bit more well, then... As I mentioned earlier on, then um, it was suggested, oh, you could take overnight leave with your mum and just so that I could have a, a little bit of normality, you know. I, I, was, I wasn't even expecting to spend Christmas at home, but I, I got to spend Christmas at home with my mum, which was, you know, really major for me. But on the flip side, I have come across a, a lot, and I mean a lot of families that feel that they, they were pushed aside by providers and they, they weren't really allowed in on you know, their, their loved ones care. Sometimes it's at the, the request of the person at the, at the, at the centre, you know, the person with the diagnosis. Sometimes it's at their request. But at other times, it's just because it's convenient for the provider, which is, you know, it's not on really. So Amy and Devon, a final question from me is around any messages that you would have for frontline staff who are working, you know, in a time of real crisis with COVID-19 and we have, you know, our hospitals like the rest of the nation, in fact, the rest of the world currently in lockdown, which means that actually people are being subject to even more restrictions than they would normally face. Do you have any tips or messages or anything that you would like to say to our frontline about what they could do potentially to make that easier for people? Just review, review and review again all restrictive practices. I mean, I think firstly, obviously, thank you. Thank you for staying at work. Thank you for looking after some of absolutely the most vulnerable people in society. Obviously, we completely understand, you know, how much pressure you must be under and the incredibly constrained resources that you have to deliver as uh, the service that we know you, you care about a lot. But the the key thing that I think makes the most transformative difference for people is is dignity and respect for individuals. And that doesn't cost money. It costs humanity. And it can be achieved through a thousand little things whereby you acknowledge and you see the person and you listen to them and you respond to them as a person yourself. And I don't think that that needs to be affected by this crisis. I think that's something that we can all continue to bring to each other today and tomorrow. Thank you, Amy. Devon, any further reflections on that? Yeah, absolutely. It's just about seeing the person and not the circumstance. You know what I mean? Because a lot of things are done through convenience for the staff, which, you know, I'm sure nobody would would really want to admit to. But it's true. You know, things do happen like that. But that's why I was saying that it's important to review 
restrictive practices? You know, why are you withholding someone's freedom? Why are you saying no when you could be saying yes or working out a compromise? Or do you know what I mean? It's, it's, It's so important for the person who's in the service to feel that they're, you know, seen and heard. So uh, and considered as well. <laughs> so yeah, that's it really. And sorry, there's one thing we didn't actually touch on that I, I would like to ask an additional question about, and it's about the expert by experience within a hospital setting and whether you have any examples of ways in which hospitals have ensured that the patient's voice is actually heard and acted upon do you have any examples of that amy i mean i so so yeah i mean i my strongest experience of it would be through the mental health at review where i felt that it was a, a genuine and sincere effort to place experts by experience at the heart of every aspect of the review in, including at the highest level and um it certainly seemed to me that there you know the input of of people such as Steve Gilbert, Kate yeah. King and others was genuinely sort of taken account of and and, and introduced into the, the policy recommendations that, that formed formed the report. And I think there's obviously a lot of steps to steps to, to get that all integrated into practice and even more obstacles in the current context. But for me that's a that was a beacon of this can be done. Yeah, yeah thank you. Devon. I feel that experts by the the role of the expert by experience can be more than just a token. I feel that the role of the expert by experience can be more than just a, a tokenistic one, where you know the expert by experience is only working on the ground. There's no you know scope for improvement or to excel or to to go up in the organisation, and in many cases. You know, their time isn't even recognised with, with, with pain mm. or anything like that. Yeah. But I feel that experts by experience have, I mean, obviously we have, you know, a, an important voice that needs to get across to any organisation that seeks to, you know, um, work as a, a service provider in mental health. Because obviously we've seen things from the other side and we, and you know, we have that passion to kind of drive, cha- you know, positive changes I think it's really important that experts by experience are are heard, as Amy said, at every single level of the organisation and they're represented at every level of the organisation. You know, fair enough, not everyone has capacity, but those that do, let them do the work. Let them do the work. Absolutely. What can I say? Devon and Amy, I just want to thank you so much for doing this podcast. You've both been totally inspirational Um, I feel very humbled listening to your stories and your experiences and thank just thank you so much I think this is going to be probably the best and the most valuable podcast that we've done to date and that is from the bottom of my heart thank you I think it's a pleasure no it's been wonderful and I think that what I'm hearing really really strongly is that Actually, it's really simple at the end of the day. It's about staff being kind and compassionate, treating people with dignity, seeing the person and not just the illness, working with families, 
understanding people within their social context and seeing people who come with a set of strengths and assets and families mm. and communities um, who love and support them and um, everybody you know everybody who works with individuals who go through a period of vulnerability absolutely has to understand that and work with people in that context the other very powerful message I think from today is the importance of the environment and having a warm friendly clean rat free uh, (laughs) environment (laughs) where you can feel absolutely psychologically safe that that's also incredibly important so just thank you both so much and we will close it here good luck with everything you do Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of Better Together. Please subscribe in order not to miss the next episode.